happy, uh, happy Mother's Day to those for which that has application. Am I, is, is the mic on? You guys got me on yet? Now? Okay, good. Um, I was sitting there thinking um, that last song, the, the, the two songs that we sang, um, the first one, I Will Offer Up My Life, uh, that was written in 1994, but it's a very new song for us. Uh, it was in our songbook for a long, long time, and uh, I don't know if you remember this, but when, uh, when someone is baptized, we often ask them, can you give us a favorite song and we'll sing it? Well, the person who gave that song, it was a real challenge because we had never sung it before. It was in our book for years, and we had never sung this song, so... Anyway, the musicians scrambled and, and put it together, and there was practice, and sang it at, at the baptism. It was Betty Usher. And uh, that, that was kind of a, a parting gift from Betty Usher to Northbrook, was that song. So I always think of her when we sing that song. I was going to speak today on uh, Nebuchadnezzar's insanity, and then I thought, uh, it's Mother's Day. <laughs> And I know I drove my mother insane at times, but she never stooped to the level of Nebuchadnezzar. So I thought, i, I got to work on something else. Um, and this is an interesting topic when you see it. And uh, I read a book this week. Just a, it's just a little book. And it was about the, the ladies that are mentioned in the lineage of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's funny, I, I thought back, and we don't often speak messages on ladies in the Bible. We leave that up to the ladies to do that at a retreat sometime and, and so on. I, I, I did on a Mother's Day, I looked back at my, my records and I, I did do uh, the whole book of Esther somehow miraculously on a Mother's Day all in one message. Um, but we tend to miss some of these great accounts that are in the scriptures. And um, you know, we focus on Peter and Paul and the Lord Jesus and you know, Daniel and Noah, things like this, great patriarchs of the Bible. But um, and we also try to stay away sometimes from some of these unsavory characters that are in the Bible. I've got to take my jacket off because I don't know about you. It's at least 90 degrees for the Americans up here, and it's 35 for me. So, all right. Growing up, I had two grandmothers. There was Nanny Gordon. She's got the red vest on there. And Nanny Gordon... Her actual last name was Bonnell, but my grandfather, we always called him by his first name, Gordon. And that was his wife, Nanny Gordon. And she was like the queen. She was teaching me always how to speak with proper English and stop talking like a Cape Bretoner, that kind of thing, right? So she, she was really a, a, a wonderful grandmother. I learned an awful lot of things. Every time I came to her place, she, she'd tell me she, something she read in the newspaper. I remember going to see her one of the last times I went to see her in the nursing home over in Halifax, um, and she, uh, she had the paper open, and she said, did you know about this? And she was 97 years old, and she still read, had a subscription to the Herald and read it from cover to cover every day. And then there was Nanny Donald, short for MacDonald. Now, that picture was at her last birthday, and little did I know she would be with the Lord a month later. And I can tell now when I look at the picture how sick she was. I, I, until I looked at that picture again, I didn't realize that. But she was a very godly woman. And she made sure that I got to church meeting, it was called, every Sunday. And when you met Nanny Donald, 
within five seconds, you found out that she was saved and that you drastically needed to be saved right now. That was her. I don't, I don't know any, but she would, she would make John Wells look like a coward as far as boldness goes with the gospel. So she made sure everybody knew. She wanted, to know, she wanted to know and be sure that everybody in the family was going to be in heaven. And the very last words I heard her speak were to my brother and my mother. And it was the, the night before she died. She get, rallied all her strength and she said to the two of them, am I going to see you in heaven? Haunted my brother for months and he came to the Lord about three months later. Uh, my mother was about a year after that. So that's, that's the way Nanny Donald lived her life. You know, some of you might have thoughts of grandmothers that were not so amazing. Some of you might think, well, I remember my grandmother, she was a cold, sickly woman, or she was mean and distant. She used to smack us with the cane, you know. I, I don't know. Like, we all have different stories of our grandmothers. Maybe you didn't know your grandmother, and you wonder what your, your roots are like and what it would have been like to have her around. Maybe you wish you had a relationship with a grandmother you never knew. And people go searching in their family history to discover, you know, their, their past, their roots. And, and there's, I mean, there's websites and all of this stuff, and people are, I mean, they pay good money to go back and see who was my grandmother, who was my great-grandmother, and so on. Find out where they came from. But what if you went back and you're researching into your family tree and you find out that, ah, some of these characters are not so great. You know, you're, you're sitting around in Tim Hortons with your buddies or, or Starbucks if you're so inclined. And, you know, you, somebody says, well, I found out that I'm a distant relative of Queen Elizabeth. Oh, really? Nice. And the other said, well, I have royal blood as well, but it's the, it's the king of Norway is in my blood, King Hakon from way, way back. Oh, really? That's, that's, that's really neat. And then you say, yeah, well, uh, I got several prostitutes in my family. How's that, how's that going to go? But, you know, one of the most famous family trees in all of human history was filled with unsavory characters. Liars, cheats, adulterers, prostitutes. The family tree of the Lord Jesus Christ. Read it. That's that. You go back and you read the names and then you read the characters and you see what they did. And Jacob invented trick or treat. He was, he was just a thief. I mean, that's, that's the way he was. Rahab, the harlot. It's, it's, it's amazing when you, when you look at it. In Jesus' day... Genealogies were really quite important. They were, they were important in, in, first of all, it determines whether you were related to the priesthood, if you were in the line for the priesthood. You didn't get into the priesthood unless you were born into that line. Uh, it would determine if a person was of the royal line, the lineage of, of the king. And it would also influence how your family inheritance, inheritance was going to be passed on. If you're not connected, you're shut out. If you look in the Bible, the Jewish people were sticklers for genealogies. There's, there's a ton of them in the Bible. Um, it, the Old Testament is full of them. If you go through, especially in some of the books of Chronicles, um, and, and throughout the scriptures, you'll see them. Now, in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus, it's interesting. Luke, there are no females mentioned. Uh, that's in Luke chapter 3, 23 to 38. But if you read Matthews, there's five women mentioned. The five women that are mentioned are Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and of course his mother Jesus. Tamar and, Ra and Rahab were prostitutes. Bathsheba was an adulteress. Ruth was a pagan woman. 
It's remarkable that these women of the Old Testament, they find their way into the most exclusive and important genealogy of all the Bible, of all of history. Why? Well, I think it says that God goes out of his way to take those things that are not considered valuable in this world and make them valuable in his sight. God says, I'm going to use this person over here who thinks they're a loser, never amounted to much in life, doesn't think that they can do anything for me, but you know what? I like to work with people like that because I'm going to get the glory out of that. God doesn't need our money. He doesn't need a rich and influential person. He will save a rich and influential person and use them, of course. But it doesn't matter where you are on the scale. God can take any one of us and use us so that he gets the glory. And if you said amen, that would have been really good. <laughs> God can use any one of us so that he gets the glory. Amen. Thank you. Let's look at four of these women who probably wouldn't have cons considered themselves anywhere near worthy to be in the line of Jesus Messiah. I didn't ask for that hymn, but we're speaking of Jesus Messiah today. First of all, we have... Tamar. Tamar, the deceiving widow, I call her. It's really shocking that she's named in the genealogy. Really, uh, there's no redeeming value or silver lining in her story. You can't look at Tamar and say, yeah, that's a really good point, or that's, that's positive about Tamar. There's nothing, nothing at all. She's pretty much a corrupt character. We see her using prostitution and deception of Judah. It's found in, in Genesis. So if you want to look uh, uh, at Genesis, let's turn to Genesis chapter 38. And Judah, just to give you the background, was Joseph's brother, son of Jacob. Yes, you may. You get the gold star. Jacob's brother, Jacob's son, he had 12 sons, remember, and, and uh, Judah was one of them. Joseph was another. And remember the brothers hated Joseph and they wanted to kill him? But Judah said, whoa, 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 let's kill him? Why don't we sell him? And he, in Genesis chapter 37, 26 to 28, you read that he says, what profit is it for us to kill our brother and to cover up his blood? Let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. So in a family of very corrupt brothers, at least he had a bit of a conscience. And, and so they put Joseph in the pit, and you know the rest of the story. Later, Joseph left his brothers, and there he met and married a Canaanite woman uh, named Shua. And they had three sons, Ur, Onan, and uh, Shelah, or Sh however you say it. Maybe Sheila, Shelah, I'd say it's Shelah. And so we find Tamar found in Genesis chapter 38. So if you have your Bibles there and you want to turn to Genesis chapter 38, uh, verses 6 to 10. It says, Now, Jod now Judah uh, took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Joseph's firstborn, was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord took his life. Then Jod Judah went to Onan and said, Go into your brother's wife and perform your duty as a, bro a brother-in-law to her. So what was supposed to happen is if, if your brother died... You were the next in line was to take responsibility for his wife and take her as his own wife and uh, raise up offspring for your brother. Onan knew that his offspring would not be his, so when he went in 
uh, to his brother. He prevented her from giving offspring to his brother. But what he did was displeasing to the Lord, and the Lord took his life also. So now Judah is thinking, okay, uh, why don't Tamar just go back to your parents' home? Because anybody who goes near you dies. It's, this is not a good thing. So she did that. He didn't want his last son, Shelah, uh, to, marry, to marry, and he wasn't really old enough at the time. But he really didn't intend to, to give the son over because he thought, okay, he's going to die too. So Tamar did go back and lived at her father's home. Read that in verse 11. Time goes by. Judah's wife dies. And then we find Judah going up to shear his sheep. He's just going off to, to do some work. His wife is gone. And he's working in the area. And it, but Tamar decides, she finds out that he's there. So she disguises herself as a prostitute. And she comes out and meets up with, with him, kind of puts herself out in front of him and, you know, hey, big guy. And so he falls for it. He propositions her. He says, okay, all right, this is what, exactly what I'm looking for, a prostitute, nice. So he propositions her, sends her an offering, a young goat from his flock, giving her uh, his staff, his cord, as a seal and a pledge. They have an encounter. She goes back and puts her widow's clothes back on and just disappears. Months later, I'm, I'm summarizing the whole chapter for you. Months later, Judah hears that his daughter-in-law is pregnant. He finds out who it is. Well, okay, I've had enough of this. She's going to be burned to death. This is, this is what they did in that society at the time. <clears throat> but then she sends him the cord, the, the seal and the staff, and says, oh my goodness, That's, I now know who this is. And that's going to be my child. She has a child, uh, Perez. She had two. They were twins. Perez, and through Perez came the lineage to King David through to Jesus Christ. So Tamar, this deceiving, widowed, disguised prostitute trickster, is now in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. It's a pathetic story. It's a pathetic situation. But Tamar makes it into his genealogy. Why? Why does her story make, make the Bible? It's, 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 it seems so sad and so weird to me. But God still allowed Tamar to play a role in the most important part of all human history. In all of humanity. Despite her failures, despite of who she was and how people looked at her, her name is found in the book of Matthew as one from whom the Lord Jesus Christ descended. He will use anybody. That's the whole point. God can use anybody for his glory. God's grace goes beyond our sin, beyond our cover-ups. I don't know how she was after she had the child. I don't know how it was when she and, and, and Jake, or, um, Judah were, were together. And I don't know what kind of mother she was. I don't know any of those things. Those details aren't here. But God in his grace used this lady through whom the Messiah would come. That's an amazing story. Next we have, and I, I could spend an awful lot of time on all of these, but next we have Rahab, the prostitute. Uh, I use that word because you read in most versions of the, of the Bible, she's called Rahab the harlot. In our day, there's no other way we would describe her but Rahab the hooker. That's what we would, that's what we would call her. There's nothing, again, this, this lady, this is what she did. That was her living. 
Unlike Tamar, she, she, this is, Tamar pretended to be this. This lady was that. That's what she did for a living. So at this time in history, where Rahab shows up, this is again years later, Moses is dead. Joshua is now leading the children of Israel as they came out of Egypt, and they're going in to take the land. And one of the big cities they have to conquer is Jericho. So they come to Jericho, and they say, okay, we better send some spies in to see if we can find some weaknesses, some spots where we can get in here. So as they go in, this Rahab comes along, and they find out, okay, we're in trouble here. The king knows that we're in town, and if he finds us, we're dead. This whole operation is over. So she says, all right, uh, don't you worry. I'll hide you, and we'll tell the king you went that away, or the soldiers, you went that away, and see if we can send them away. Let's uh, look at uh, Joshua chapter 2, verses 8 to 13, and I've put them up there for you. Now, before they lay down, this is the, uh, this is the spies. Uh, she came up on the roof, and she said to them, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the terror of you has fallen on all of us, and that the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and, you did, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond uh, Jordan, to Sion and to Og, who you utterly destroyed. When we heard it, our hearts melted, uh, and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. Now therefore, please swear to me by the Lord, since I have dealt kindly with you, that you will also deal kindly with my father's household and give me a pledge of truth. And spare my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters and all who belong uh, to them and deliver uh, our lives from death. So here's this wicked city of Jericho and here's this woman of faith. This woman who was known as a harlot, this woman who was known as a prostitute. And what she saw, we're, we're studying Daniel uh, as well, on, kind of on the side here. And we notice that King Nebuchadnezzar, going back to Daniel, is looking at Daniel and he says, I know this about your God because I see it in you. I know the way you act, this about your God. And here's this, this, this lady, this, this former prostitute. And she's looking and she's watching and she sees what's going on. She sees, like, just like the whole, the whole city saw. Why did she come to faith? Why did she come to know, to know God? Well, it's found in this verse, in verse 10 and 11. It says, For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea when you came out of Egypt. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any courage in anyone because of you. For the Lord your God, he is the God of heaven above and on earth beneath. This sinful woman came to have faith in the reality of the living God because of the evidence that she saw of God working in people's lives, in his people's lives. So the message in that is people watch you. People will watch and see, and they see God working in your life. They see God working in your home. They see God working in your family. They see God working in you in the workplace, in school. And they think, there's a reality to this. And they can come to trust God out of those things. It's interesting here to note that Rahab, along with Sarah, are the only two women mentioned in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11. Um, 
They absolutely have nothing in common. They're nothing alike. Sarah was a godly woman who was a co-founder of the Jewish people. Rahab was an ungodly Gentile who worshipped pagan gods and sold her body for money. Two totally different people. But they're the only two women that find themselves in Hebrews chapter 11 in the Hall of Faith. Rahab and Sarah shared one thing, though, in common in their life. They both exercised faith in the true and living God. So it doesn't matter who you are or where you are, if you come to saving faith in God through the Lord Jesus, you have that in common. He will save the harlot, or he will save the patriarch's wife. Sometimes we, we want to romanticize Rahab, and, and, and you know, when, you, when you see shows like uh, the Bible and things that come out of uh, Hollywood, it makes it look very glamorous. But she really was a despised person in the community. But God used her. It shows that God can reach anyone. I'll continue on. When the, when the spies, as we all know in the story, when the spies, they made a deal with her to hang a scarlet cord out of her window, and when they did, when they passed by, and miraculously this happened, all, <coughs> excuse me, all of the walls, all of the buildings in, in Jericho fell down, except for one place, hers, with the cord hanging out of the window. Reminds me again of, you know, again, a, a scarlet cord. Reminds me of that blood of Christ, doesn't it? It reminds me of those of us who are covered under the blood of Christ, are protected from the judgment of God. Here's this city that's under the judgment of God. We think back of the angel of death going through the land of Egypt to kill all the firstborn. That's found back in Exodus chapter 12. God made a provision. If the children of Israel put blood from a lamb that was sacrificed to him across the top of the door and down the doorposts, it says, when I see that blood, I will pass over you. And in effect, this was another picture of that, a scarlet cord hanging out. And the judgment of God passed by this lady's house because she was obedient. God took this woman, this person out of obscurity, and used her in a glorious way. And through her, through her lineage, comes Jesus Christ. Next we have, and this is a very long story, and I, I don't know how I'm going to get through it, and I'll, I, will, I will. There's the story of Ruth. I remember uh, last time I, I heard something on Ruth, it was a four-part sermon, four Sundays. Uh, so, so I won't go into a whole lot of detail on this, but I will just kind of use my points that I have on the PowerPoint here because I have mm, a few pages of notes. So Ruth was a Gentile. She was a Moabite. Moabites were hated by the Israelites. They dis absolutely despised them. And part of it goes back to a time when Israel was, and they, they were kind of half-brothers of the Israelites, but Israel was wanting to go through and just say, can you... Can you let our, just only a million of us, but can we pass through your land and just not take anything? And the Moabites said, you kidding me? No, you're going to take us over. He said, no, 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 we just want to pass through. Uh, there's a million of you, uh, you're going to take us over. No, go around us. So they had to go around them. Uh, that was not forgotten. Moabites were hated by, by the Israelites. So there's this, there's this lady, um, Naomi. And Naomi was a, was a Jewish lady. And there was a famine in the land. So she, they left and went to Moab with her two sons and her husband. And uh, while they're in Moab, the two sons married these Moabite women who descended from Lot. She lost her husband. And then she lost both of her sons. You read that in uh, the first few verses, first five verses of Ruth. So now here's Naomi. She's not just a widow, but she doesn't have her parents she doesn't have any immediate family. 
She's alone. Now, a widow today uh, has a rough go, there's no doubt about it, but there are social agencies and there are places that will help you. In that day, a widow was without anything, without anything. No parents, no family, no adult children, no hope of even being part of society again. Economically, the most vulnerable person in society at that time was a widow. Every culture has a way of telling you you're a nobody, but in those days, if you were a widow and you had no other family, you were really nothing. Only thing probably worse would be to have leprosy. She had nobody. Basically, life is a dead-end street. So she's getting ready to leave Moab because she hears there's bread back in, in her land and thought, maybe I can go back and beg for bread. And she says to her two daughters-in-law, um, I want to call her Oprah, but it's not. Oprah's called Oprah because her mother misspelled the name. Uh, or, or, Orpah, right? Is that right, Clyde? Orpah. So she says to Orpah and Ruth, why don't you guys go back to your families in Moab? I'm going to head back to Israel, and let's try to live somewhat happily ever after if we can. You, you, you're just better off to be in your land. Orpah says, here's a kiss, Mom, goodbye. I'm going back to my family. Ruth clung to her, it says, and uh, I put the verse here, her pledge to Naomi. Um, she says, do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you from where you go, or for where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and, I will, and there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me, and worse, if anything, but death parts you and me. When she saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. She wanted to be with her mother-in-law, no matter what. She wanted to... I look at this and I think, what kind of testimony in the home did Naomi have to these, to these girls? That Ruth would want to so much leave everything, forsake everything in this life, and no matter what happens, I am going to attach myself to my mother-in-law. And I think it was because of the great testimony of Ruth, or of Naomi, that Ruth went with her. So she does go, and she takes this job of gleaning uh, at the barley harvest. Now, gleaning at the barley harvest, is, is, it sounds so wonderful, doesn't it? What are we going to do? Oh, we're going to a gleaning party at the bar barley harvest. Excellent. Can I come too? Well, gleaning meant you went out and you picked up whatever was left over after they had finished harvesting, the stuff that was around the edges of the field, and that's what you got to take home to make bread from to eat. That's, it was a really, really hard, awful job. So after they had taken all the heads off the barley stalks and everything else, and whatever was on the ground, you went in and you picked up the scraps and you took them home and that's what you ate. Not a glamorous job. So that's what she does. She catches the eye of the owner of the field, Boaz. Boaz is very kind to, this, to, to Ruth. And they start a conversation. She comes back and says, hey, mom-in-law, I met this cool guy who owns the field, and he says, why don't you come and work in my field? Just work in my field. And he kind of gave me a little more stuff than I picked up off the ground. What's his name? Boaz. Boaz? Wait a second. He's an old relative of mine from, from way, way back. He can do something for us. Since we have nothing, and we did have land, and we had all of this stuff, he can be what's known at the time as a kinsman redeemer. Now, what in the world's a kinsman redeemer? Because I've always heard 
great and eloquent messages on my kinsman redeemer, and I had no idea what it really meant. So here I put it down. Here's what a kinsman redeemer is. In Israelite law, a kinsman redeemer had the legal right to buy back ancestral land for a family that might have lost it under circumstances of poverty, which, which Naomi did, whether it was sold or forfeited or just simply abandoned. When Israel came into the promised land, each of the tribes were given a portion of land that would stay in the family. It was a guarantee for their inheritance. But if the land was forfeited or lost for some reason, the land could be bought back by a close relative, the kinsman redeemer. If he had the money and the will to do it, he would do this for his relative. And that's what Boaz could do for these ladies. I'm taking a four-chapter book and making it like this. Ruth goes back to Boaz and basically proposes marriage to him and said, oh, by the way, you could be our kinsman redeemer uh, for this land that we, you know, for mom-in-law and I. And he says, yeah, I'll do that. I'll, I, I'm really summarizing a lot of stuff here. So he does that. He marries her and goes for it. And here's the results. We read this in Ruth chapter 4, verses 13 to 17. He's, he's really in love with Ruth, just over the top. It's a, it's, it's, if you're looking for a great love story, read this, read the book of Ruth. So then it says in verse 13 of chapter 4, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and, went, uh, and he went into her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son, and then, uh, and the women said to Naomi, Blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a redeemer today. May, may his name be famous in Israel. May he also um, be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age, for your daughter-in-law who loves you is better to you than seven sons and has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on, his, on her lap and became his nurse. The neighbor women gave him, the, gave him a name, saying, The son has been born to Naomi, and they named him Obed, and he is the father of Jesse, the father of David. So Ruth is the grandmother of King David. Through all of this convoluted story, this Moabite woman, who was despised by Israelites, is now the grandmother of their greatest king. It, it, I just want to point out a couple things. First of all, Naomi's choice. First, she chose to live in such a way that she glorified God in her own home. In such a way that she influenced her daughters-in-law, especially one. She practiced her faith in Moab, in a very hard land, a very difficult place, in the darkest of times, in such a way that her daughter-in-law Ruth said, there's something about this woman, I always want to be around her. So to us, how do we live in our home? The place where we have to live the best is before our children and before our family. It can influence your family. It can influence your children. It can influence your in-laws. Those you live with know you the best. And Naomi had a testimony because she lived in such a way with these girls that they were attracted to her and attracted to her God. Your God will be my God. I'm convinced your God is real. I want him to be my God, is what Ruth said. The second thing is Ruth's choice. She decided, I'm not going back to my family and friends. I choose Jehovah God. I choose 
to follow him. In Mark, there's a passage that Jesus says, I assure you that everyone who has given up house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or property for my sake and for the good news or for the gospel will receive now in return a hundred times as many houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and property along with persecution. Um, I know we all wish he didn't put that part at the end, <laughs> but he did. <laughs> and in, this wor- in the world to come, that person will have eternal life. You might think sometimes, and this is what kept me from coming to Christ. I can't give up my friends. You've got to be kidding me. If I have to give up my friends, that's, that's going to... I can assure you, I have gained more friends, more brothers, more sisters, more mothers, more fathers, and more blessing than I ever could have imagined if I just stuck with my friends. It's amazing. God greatly rewards those who choose him. What made Ruth great? Did she wake up one morning and said, I'm going to be a better person, I'm going to try harder, I'm going to work harder, I'm going to be more selfless, I'm going to do the right thing? No. I'm going to follow the Lord God. That's what made Ruth great. I would rather have the Lord, this God, as my God than any other God, and God rewarded her for that. She is in the lineage of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the next character, and I'm going to go really quickly through this one, is Bathsheba. We all know the story of Bathsheba, um, I think. Bathsheba, the, to, to sum it up, I'll go to 2 Samuel chapter 11, verses 1 to 5. I've put that up there. And it happened in the spring, when uh, time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of uh, Ammon and besieged uh, Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. Uh, wait a second now. Let's back up a little bit. It's the time of the year when who goes to battle? Kings. But David decided, I'm going to have some R&R instead. So first of all, he's not doing what he's supposed to be doing. Now, when the evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around the roof of the king's house, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful in appearance. So David inquired about the woman, um, and one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of uh, Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And David sent messengers, messengers and took her, and when she came to him, he lay with her, and when she had purified herself from the uncleanness, her uncleanness, rather, she returned to her house, and the woman conceived and sent and told David, I am pregnant. Wow. Now, I read a bunch of commentaries on this. Some say, nasty Bathsheba, putting herself out there on the roof for some, all to see. I don't really, and then some say, if a king said, you're coming over to my place no matter what, you're coming over. So some are defending her, some are against her. Really, the story's not about that. The story's about David, the king who knows better, who should have been out of battle, looks down and says, I want that woman, and has her come to his house. I don't know whether she resisted. I don't know any of that stuff. However, bottom line, David did wickedly. Secondly, she did commit adultery. And she did have a child out of wedlock, or not out of wedlock, she did have a child out of that affair that she had with King David. Again, she, she, she committed adultery, and so did he. Now, okay, we'll continue on, continue on with the story. The clock is still moving. I can't, can't believe it. Can you stop that clock back there, Matthew? No, okay. <clears throat> 
So then, once she sends this message, tell the king that I am pregnant, David goes through all of these things to try to cover it up. Ultimately, he has her husband killed. Sends him out to the front line of the battle, where the, where the fiercest fighting is going to be, and make sure that he's dead is really the message that he sent out. So, he lusts, has adultery, deceives her husband, other story, sends the husband out and has him murdered. Hmm. So now, here we are. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse uh, 26. Now when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. When the time of mourning was over, David sent and brought her into his house, and she became his wife, and then she bore him a son. But the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the next thing that happened is Nathan the prophet comes and tells David a little story about this family with the little ewe lamb and a guy who came along and stole the little lamb. You should read the story. It's, it's an amazing story. And then after you read that, go and read Psalm 51. Because it, it killed David when he faced his sin. When he saw what he had done. I don't mean killed him dead. I mean, he, he faced his sin and he said, oh, I have done this wickedness. And he pours his heart out to God. And God forgives him. The child dies uh, of of this union that they had. But God blessed Bathsheba. She becomes pregnant again. And it says in verse 24, I think put the, then David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and went in and lay with her. So she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. And I love these next words. <clears throat> again, this is Bathsheba the adulteress, and this is King David the adulterer. Of their son, it says, now the Lord loved him. After David had confessed a sin, after David had made things right with his God, and they have another child, Solomon, it says, and the Lord loved him. What grace, what love from God. This, this couple that, again, they're in the lineage of the Lord Jesus Christ. Finally, I just, I'm going to wrap up here. What's it all about? What is all this all about? What does it mean to us? Well, first of all, it doesn't matter where we are. We're all the same. We're really basically all the same. Jesus didn't come to just renovate people. He came to make dead people alive. And it doesn't matter whether you're an executive, a prostitute, an alcoholic, whatever you are. The Bible says, this is, this is the verse that levels every single one of us. In Romans chapter 3, verse 22, we always read 23, but we should read the last words of 22 first. There's no distinction. I'm the same as all of you. And you're the same as all the people that walk by us on Spring Garden Road when we're down there. And we're the same as everybody driving by in this car. In, in their cars, rather, by, driving by this building. It says, there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So lest you think you're better than Rahab, lest you think you're better than Bathsheba, or you think you're better than Tamar, you're not. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all the same. The second thing is that God's blessing is not based on our family history. I'm kind of glad about that because as I get older and I hear stories of some of the stuff that went on in my family history, mm. I don't want to tell them. 
Well, I'll tell them to few select people. It's just to keep Sam and Ben and Mary humble. But God's blessings are, have nothing to do with your family history. By grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It is the gift of God, and it is not of works, or family heritage, or social status, or amount of money you have, or how many times you did or didn't commit adultery. It has nothing to do with any of that. It is the gift of God, so that not one person could ever boast. I'm saved because I never committed adultery. I'm saved because I'm a good neighbor. I'm saved because I'm a rich person. Nobody can do that. It's a gift from God. The third thing that we learn from this is when you come to Christ, you become a new creation, a new creature. Look at Ruth, a nothing, a Moabite, yuck. She comes to God. And it says in in, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, it says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. Aren't you glad about that, that the old things in your life, the past, the history, all that unsavory stuff, those relatives that were really, that's all behind you. The old is gone. And you are now a new creature, a new creation, a new person. Kids are telling me to wrap up. I can hear it. I love the verse that says in, uh, in 1 John. In 1 John it says, If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. God can save, God will save, and God will cleanse us. Three lessons from the family tree. And yours might be gnarled and crooked. One thing we've learned this morning is that the family tree of the Lord Jesus Christ is a pretty crooked tree. First we see that God's grace is richly displayed in all of these people. God chose and used people that you would never pick, that you would never want to use, that you would never choose at all. But he did. Despite their shortcomings, despite their sins, despite their bad choices, God intervened, he redeemed them, and he used them. Doesn't mean they won't face consequences. Bathsheba lost her child. But yet, the blessings that came afterwards. God used the most obscure people. The second thing is we focus on the Lord Jesus Christ, not on his family. I'm telling you this about his grandmothers, but the focus is on the Lord Jesus Christ. Some people have problems relating to Jesus because they think that, well, like he's too good to be true. I mean, he, you know, he's just looking down on us with disapproval for everything we do. But the Bible says that he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to him since he always lives to make intercession for them. He may gave a message a while back about what is Jesus doing for you now? You should listen to that. He is there for us. He's a friend of sinners, as he was accused of, and that's what he is. And lastly, and I'm going to wrap up with this, we have hope for a future for our own families. Maybe you have a family background like some of these ladies. Maybe there are people in your background and in your family now, and you're thinking, is there hope for them? Perhaps you sit around and say, okay, (laughs) my family's so dysfunctional. Well, guess what? You know what? I come from a dysfunctional family. And I'm the head of a dysfunctional family. And my family's dysfunctional. So it, that's just the way it is. And that's sin. Yeah, Sam, you are. <laughs> Maybe we don't have murderers and prostitutes in our families, but I bet you we have somewhere you're going to find a liar or a cheat or somebody who might have stolen something or somebody who told a lie. You're going to find that. Is there hope? Jesus came into the world to save sinners. 
He came into the world to intervene and to change things. Maybe you're thinking, okay, I've done things that I never should have done. I've wasted years of my life. Christ can change that. He changed the lives of these women. He changed the lives of these people. Jesus came to this earth. It says, to die on a cross, and if you repent of your sin and turn to him, and that payment on the cross, only for you, you will be saved, and your life will change. You must confess and call upon the Lord. The Bible says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. May you do so this morning if you don't know him. Father, thank you this morning for um, these examples in Scripture. We thank you, Lord, that you have placed these accounts here that we can learn from them. And it gives us great hope, Lord, as we look into the family tree of the Lord Jesus Christ and we see some of the characters that were there filled with sin, filled with deception and, and just unsavory characters. Yet you chose to use them. Lord, I, I just pray we all come from the same kind of background. We are all the same ourselves. We are sinners. The Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But I pray, Lord, that you would, in your grace... Remind us that we have been saved through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now, as it says in Scripture, the old is gone and the new has come. Help us to live and walk in newness of life that we have in him. If there's anybody here this morning who has never come to know the Lord Jesus as their Savior, I pray and I trust, Lord, that you would work on their hearts, that they may confess their sin, repent, and want to turn from their sin, and turn to him, the only one who can save, and the only one who can give hope, not only for this life, but for the life to come. We ask it in the precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.